You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Well, good morning. Merry Christmas to you. If you would please join with me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. For those who are visiting with us, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew now for a little over two years, and we arrive in the 24th chapter this morning at verses 36 through 44, but I want to begin reading with verse 32, Matthew chapter 24, and we read beginning with verse 32. Our Lord said this, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For just as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding grain at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Let's go together to our God in prayer, ask His blessing this morning. Father in heaven, we love you, and we love your church. We love your people. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you that we are yours. We thank you that you have made us yours. We're grateful today for our Savior, your Son, our shepherd and king, our redeemer, our deliverer. You're thankful that we have the opportunity in this season of the year to celebrate the incarnation, to celebrate His coming into the world, the life that He lived, the death that He died, the fact that He has been raised and lives forevermore, that He has ascended into heaven and is returning again. These are the things that we think about as we celebrate His birth. I thank you today for the privilege of declaring the glories of your Son and confess my inadequacy to do so well and confess my own weakness, but thankful at the same time for your sufficiency and adequacy and that, Lord, you are the one at work through the weakness of the instruments who preach your word to make yourself known. And I pray that that would happen even today, that your church would be edified and built up as a result of what we hear and that those who do not yet know your son would hear the gospel clearly. And I pray that 
even that this day would be the day when someone would be saved, that they would come to true and saving faith in Jesus. Help me, Lord, to preach this day. Help us to listen. And we will give you thanks for what you do in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the sad pieces of evidence of the weakness of much of the contemporary church, and when I say church, I mean the professing church, the church of our time, the church of our generation. One of the sad pieces of evidence of the weakness of it all have been those times when you hear something like this, we need to teach the Bible in a way that makes it relevant to the people of our time. The Bible needs to be preached in a way that we make it relevant. You need to know something. As soon as you hear words like that, you're hearing words of unbelief. They are words of unbelief coming from the mouth of someone who professes to be a believer and may in fact be a believer. But those words would reflect weakness in that believer, um, what is really a sinful perspective in that believer. It's the very same kind of attitude that would have someone searching the internet for life advice with their Bible sitting on their coffee table. The only thing necessary for the Bible to be relevant is for it to be true. If the Bible is what it claims to be, if the Bible is what our Savior said that it is, then it's the most relevant voice you will ever hear. If the Bible is true, then we have in our hands this morning the very words of God, the very words of our Creator and Sustainer. If the Bible is true, then you have God's testimony about how we all started, our origins, our end, and everything that matters in between. If the Bible is true, we have the message of salvation and judgment. God has told us how it all started. He has told us how it went wrong. He has told us of His remedy for our problem, our need. And He has told us of our responsibility in light of that message. Our responsibility for our sin and our responsibility for what we will do with His free offer of salvation and reconciliation in His Son. And if the Bible is true, and it is, then we have, even before us today, Christ's very words about His second coming. The Bible tells us how He came into the world. Jesus tells us how He's going to come again to this world. And as He tells us about His second coming, He calls for something from us. He calls for believers to stay awake. Verse 42, therefore stay awake, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. We talked about this last time, the abiding principle through all of this instruction, most of it futuristic, most of it speaking about a day and age that has not yet arrived. But the reason why it's left for all of us and for all believers of all time is because there's an abiding principle that runs through it all, and that is we're to live our lives alert based upon what our Lord has told us and promised us, and we're to be ready to obey 
whatever He tells us to do in light of what we meet with. This is what our Lord is doing. He's laying out an outline of world events leading to His second coming. He's talking about the signs that precede that second coming, that indicate the season for His second coming, and He's telling believers of all time, knowing that it will apply only to those who are alive at the time when He comes again to the earth. But for all time, what abides is we're all to be alert to what this world is based upon what He said, and we're to be ready to obey Him as we walk our own journey through this world. Stay awake. Stay awake. And that's what we're going to think about together in our time this morning, what it means as believers to stay awake in light of what Jesus is saying to us here. We'll look at these verses under four headings. I'll just mention them as we come to them. First of all, we see the mystery regarding Christ's return, the mystery regarding Christ's return. Verse 36, our Lord says this, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Our Lord said, we read this just a moment ago, He says in verse 33, so you too, when you see all these things, recognize that He's near, right at the doors, right at the gates, as it were. And He's referring to everything that He's shared before, everything that He's spoken of, the signs of the ages that lead up to the abomination of desolation, the sign of the great tribulation, which is the abomination of desolation, the signs that will follow that, signs in the heavens, signs on the earth. He's talking about all these signs that then lead to the season for His second advent. And He says that that second advent is the season for it, is recognizable. Now, as we've already talked about, I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. There are no signs that precede the rapture, but there are signs that precede the second coming. And what He's saying to us is, you should be able, you're responsible, those who will be alive at the time, responsible to recognize that based upon these signs. However, even though the season is recognizable, the signs will be there, there's still going to be a need for alertness. There's still going to be a need for perseverance. Remember what he said in the 13th verse. He said, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Even during this season that Jesus is describing, believers will be tempted to unbelief. Believers will be tempted to lose heart. And so they must persevere. And if you ask, how are they to persevere? The answer is, with His words. I've told you what's coming. I've told you what to look for. When the season arrives, you'll be able to recognize it. Yet you must persevere through this time of great tribulation. And the way you're going to be able to do it is with my words. This is why Jesus tells us about all this in the most solemn way in verses 34 and 35. Verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The generation of people alive when these signs occur will see the end of these things. That is, he is right at the doors. He is near at that time. There's not going to be any more long delay. We right now are living in a season of 2,000 years, 
since Jesus spoke about his second advent. But when these signs arrive, no, now it's time. It is the season for his return. He is right at the doors. And he says in verse 34, I say this to you truly. You can count on this. Take this to the bank. Know that this is true. And then he strengthens that in verse 35 when he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He's saying to his people, in effect, when you feel like you have nothing else to hold on to, I want you to hold on to my words. This is the same principle by which we persevere right now. It is true to say of all of us that endurance is what marks genuine faith. Perseverance is what marks the true people of God. And if you ask, how do we persevere? The answer is the words of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Prepare your minds for action. How do I do this? You're sober-minded. That speaks of alertness, awakeness. I'm in my serious mind. I'm in my right mind as I look at the world in which I'm living. Sober-minded is time to live. And then he says, set your hope fully, that is completely, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I am waiting for my Savior to return. The grace that has been described in Scripture that will arrive with him is what I'm looking for. And by setting my mind on that fully, I am then steeled, I am strengthened, I am fortified. My mind is right to be able to persevere in the age in which we're living. We persevere as we hold on to the words of God. We persevere as we hold on to the promises of Jesus. This requires a set of eyes that is only granted through salvation. I know this about you if you really know Jesus. You're able to see things the rest of the world can't see. You're able to see things with the eyes of faith that can't be seen with the physical eye. That is, what Jesus has said, what the Word of God has given you, you believe it, though you've not yet experienced some of it, though you've not yet seen some of it, you know it's true, you know it's real, because God has said so. We're a people who live our lives in this present age, persevering with eyes, able to see what God has said by faith. Hebrews 11.27, speaking of the perseverance of Moses, says, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. How do you see the one who is invisible? The answer, of course, is with the eyes of faith. Moses believed. And that's not just true of Moses, that's true of all of us. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, speaking of the people of God who have died, not yet seeing what they knew they were to inherit, Hebrews 11.13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. You don't just know they're coming, these things God has promised. You rejoice in them. You greet them, as it were, from a distance, even before they have arrived, having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
This is not our home, is it? This is not our home, this present age. So we live our lives as pilgrims, sojourners. We're on a journey through this land until we arrive at the forever land, metaphorically speaking, and then one day literally speaking. Verse 14, for people who speak thus, who talk like this, make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. God is not ashamed to call you His people. And here's what I know about all of you who are truly His people. You know that this is not your home, and you're looking for a better country, a heavenly one, and you endure in this present age by seeing from afar and greeting from afar things that you are only able to see and hold on to because God said it, because He promises it. So Jesus gives the general time of His return, and He says, truly I say this to you. And He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. When the time comes that it seems you have nothing else to hold on to, hold on to My words. And in this way you will be sustained, and in this way you will persevere. Now one of the reasons why alertness will be needed even when this season arrives is because it's only the season that is identified, not the day or the hour of His return. Verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Last three and a half years of the tribulation period, you know Jesus is standing at the door. What day, what hour will He return to the earth? No one knows. And in fact, we learned earlier that one of the things that will characterize this period of time, many false Christs and people will be saying, He came, He's over here, He's in this inner room. Jesus says, don't believe them. When I return, it's going to be like lightning in the sky. Everyone's going to know. Like vultures circling a carcass, you can see them from a far distance. So His second coming is not going to be anything secret. The whole world will be able to recognize it. But the day and the hour, no one knows. And in these words, I said earlier, you have sort of a mystery, I guess we could describe it, a mystery because, in fact, I don't know that it's possible for our, to get our brains completely around because he says it's not just the angels who don't know. It's not just us, humanity, who doesn't know. He says in verse 36, the Son doesn't know. I mean, as he's standing there at this time with his disciples on this planet, he says he didn't know the day or the hour of his return. He can set forth an outline of events leading all the way to his second coming. He can tell us about what's going to happen just preceding the Great Tribulation. He can tell us about the sorts of things happening in the world at the time. He even describes His second coming, what it's going to be like, the judgment that will follow, the salvation that will follow. He can give us all of this information, and yet He says at this time as He's talking to His disciples, He doesn't know the day or the hour. How can that be? Isn't Jesus God in human flesh? Yes, He is. 
doesn't God possess omniscience? Yes, He does. So how can God in human flesh say He doesn't know? And now we're touching, aren't we, on the very thing we celebrate tomorrow, celebrate today in worship, celebrate tomorrow as a day recognized in our culture, celebrating the birth of Jesus. Now we're talking about the mystery of the Incarnation. I mean, here we meet with the wonder of Christmas. Here we meet with the love of God for us sinners. Here we meet with the humility necessary to rescue us. Philippians 2.5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the love of God for us. This is the love of the Son of God for us. And the eternal counsels and decrees of the one true and living God, one divine essence, three persons who have existed as one God from all eternity, in the counsels of that one will of God, it was determined that the eternal Son of God would come into the world to save us. That would require Him taking to Himself an additional nature. He would embrace an additional nature to save us, a true human nature, yet without sin. He would be the second. He would be the last Adam, the Son of Man who is the Son of God. And He would bring into existence a new humanity, a redeemed humanity, by giving His own life as our Redeemer. He would be born of a virgin. He would live His life on this earth, taking the form of a bondservant. He would voluntarily yield the exercise of certain divine attributes to the will of His Father so that he lived his life as a man. He lived his life as an obedient son. And having fully obeyed and fulfilling all righteousness, then he would give himself as the sacrifice for the sins of his people, and he would secure us for all eternity. Everything that we have exercised, repentance and faith, it actually flows from the cross of Christ. Christ, by his death, secured us, purchased for us everything necessary to save us, including the gracious gift of regeneration. This is explained justly by the death of Jesus for the unjust. And then having died on the cross for our sins, He'd be raised from the dead, ascend back into heaven, receive the glory that He voluntarily laid aside the expression, the visible expression of His deity. He prayed about this in John 17, verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I want you to be clear. He was as much God after the incarnation as He was before the incarnation. He was as much God as He walked on this planet as He was when He was in heaven. He did not, in coming into the world, He did not relinquish even one attribute that belongs to God. Not one. As I said, there's one divine essence, and in Jesus... 
you found the fullness of that essence dwelling bodily. Colossians 2.9 says this, for in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You meet with Jesus of Nazareth, you met with God. Which means, listen carefully, He still possessed omniscience. He didn't relinquish any divine attribute, He still possessed omniscience. And there were times on the earth when He exercised that and people met with this astounding knowledge of all things that let them know they were meeting with someone unlike anyone else who had ever lived. But during His earthly sojourn, He did so according to the will of His Father. He exercised certain of those attributes in submission to the will of His Father so that He lived His life as an obedient son. He embraced life as a man so that as a result, He could say with His disciples that He didn't know. With reference to His human nature, He didn't know the time of His return, the exact day or hour. It's a mystery, isn't it? I mean, in the eternal wisdom of God, no one was to know, not in heaven, not on earth, not the angels, not the Son, just the Father alone. Why? We're not told why. But you can be sure of this, it is the wisest possible choice. And every good reason that could possibly exist for that decision explains that decision. God doesn't do things that are arbitrary. Everything He does reflects perfect wisdom, perfect goodness, perfect love perfect holiness, the mystery surrounding the return of Christ, the day and the hour as Jesus spoke this on the earth. He knows now, but as He spoke here, He says no one knows. Second thing I want you to notice, the unbelief surrounding Christ's return. There's a mystery surrounding His return. Second, there's unbelief that will be on display at the time of His return. Verse 37, for just as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. You do understand, I hope and pray, you do understand there is ignorance that exists wherever you have rebellion toward God. It's an ignorance that men are responsible for. Because if they would simply be willing to listen and to believe God, they would know. But because they don't believe, they don't know. They don't understand. They live their lives in sinful ignorance. For three and a half years, this world is going to experience the worst hardships it has ever known. The wrath of God will be poured out upon this world in a way it has never seen before. And yet our Lord is telling us there will be something about that time period that will be like the days of Noah. When God destroyed the entire world with a flood and all of humanity was wiped out except for Noah's family, eight people survived. How are people living back then when the flood came? They were living in sinful ignorance. Jesus said they did not understand. Verse 39, they did not understand until the flood came. They heard words we're going to see in a moment. I mean, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. No doubt they heard warnings and they heard offers of grace. 
But in their rebellion, there was this ignorance. So that when the flood came, they didn't see it coming. Living like God's warnings are fairy tales. Living like nothing will ever change. Living like this world will always be as we've known it. That's how they were living before the flood came. And Jesus says this is how people are going to be living. Despite all these hardships for three and a half years, this incomparable wrath poured out upon the world, people will still, he says, be going on as if it's never going to end. Marrying, giving in marriage, birthdays, anniversary, things to do, places to go, people to gather until the day arrives, until it's too late. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. His wor world, where he lived, heard the message. He didn't spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. He goes on to say, don't think that the Lord is not going to bring judgment upon this world. And just as it will be when Jesus comes again, so it is now. That is, we're living in a world where the truth has been heard. There are preachers of righteousness. There are people who tell the world the truth. But in their rebellion against the Lord... There is still this ignorance, people living their lives as if it's never going to end. And in fact, they scoff at the thought that Jesus is coming again. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is the second coming you people talk about? Where is the coming? They've been talking about the second coming for thousands of years. Peter goes on to say, for they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And as God took a creation that emerged out of water and destroyed it with water, and He did it with His Word. I mean, by the Word of God, it was all destroyed. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Then Peter says this, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Just as surely as God destroyed the world with a flood in the time of Noah, the people heard about it, but acted as though it would never happen. So one day God will destroy this present age, this world as we know it now. His wrath will come. The flood of His wrath will arrive. 
And people have heard about it. They've been warned about it. And they scoff about it. They live in their sinful ignorance as though it will never happen. What does Peter say? You, you have it on the Word of God that it will happen. The world that existed prior to the flood existed by the Word of God. The flood destroyed it by the Word of God. The, wor the world you know right now is being sustained by the Word of God. And when the day comes that the Lord will wrap it up as He said He will wrap it up, it will happen by the Word of God. You have the Word of Jesus on that. You have the Word of God on that. So there's a mystery that surrounds the return of Jesus that speaks of the incarnation, that speaks of His love for us. The, the humility He embraced, the humanity He embraced in order to save us in verse 36. Then you have the the unbelief that will surround His return in verses 37 to 39 as people are caught unaware. They're caught off guard. They didn't know. They didn't understand until the flood came. Well, so it's going to be with the coming of the Son of Man. People will have heard. They just won't believe in their rebellion against God. And it's going to catch them at a time they didn't expect. Third thing I want you to see the finality of Christ's return, the finality of Christ's return, verses 40 and 41. Then there will be two in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding grain at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. What is Jesus describing? These verses have been used to speak of the rapture of the church. That is not what these verses refer to. Uh, you may have, you may remember an old movie called Left Behind. I think, well, Left Behind is the more recent version. That's the, that's the more recent version. I can't remember what, what the, the older version was, the 1980s version was. I just knew I was never going to get married because Jesus was going to return uh, right then is, is, is the impression you were left with. And so the thought was, you know, there, there I am going to be sitting in my car and I'm going to be gone and somebody else is going to be left in the passenger seat or whatever the case may be. Well, the rapture will involve a snatching away of God's people, but that's, that's not the time period in view here. This is, this is at the end of the tribulation period. This is the return of Jesus from heaven to the earth. And what he's describing is the separation of the tribulation saints from unbelievers when he returns. His return will mean salvation for God's people, but judgment for unbelievers. And there's going to be a great division, a great dividing, a great separation. That's what's being emphasized. It's a good reminder that proximity to believers doesn't mean you share in their faith. You might live in the same household doesn't mean that you're all saved. You may have come from the same family. You may have believing family members all around you and you be lost. You have two people in the field working in close proximity one to the other. One is taken, the other is left. You have two women grinding grain at the mill. They know each other. They spend time with each other. They're around each other. One's taken, one is left. What's really being emphasized is this separation John MacArthur had this to say, like the people of Noah's day, 
the generation of the tribulation will be warned and warned and warned again. Some of them will have been warned many times before the tribulation while the church is still on earth proclaiming the gospel. When the Son of Man finally appears in His second coming judgment, then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Jesus is giving a figure parallel to the unbelievers of Noah's day being taken away by the judgment through the flood. This is a question. Let me just insert this thought. This is the question around these two verses. The one that's taken, the one that's left, is it the believer who is taken and the unbeliever who is left, or is it the unbeliever who is taken and the believer who is left? Because earlier our Lord talked about the angels gathering the elect from the four winds. There will be a, a great gathering for the separation of the sheep from the goats. Is that what He has in view here? I agree with what MacArthur is about to say. I don't think so. I think what He has in view here, the one who is taken is taken away to judgment. The one who is left will go on living, entering into the millennial kingdom. He said, well, wait a second. He, he talked about this gathering by the angels. Wouldn't that be the, you know, the antecedent to this? Isn't that what our Lord has in mind? Well, also remember, though, He's just said about the, the flood, verse 39, that the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So the taking away of the flood was the taking away of judgment. I think that's what He has in mind here. MacArthur says this, I return now to his quote, when he returns, one will be taken to judgment and the other will be left to enter the kingdom. This is the same separation described in the next chapter by the figures of sheep and goats, chapter 25, verses 32 through 46. The ones left will be Christ's sheep, His redeemed people whom He will preserve to reign with Him during the millennium. James Montgomery Boyce, I'm not going to read the whole quote, but at the end of his quote on this passage, he has this to say, no one will be saved simply by being close to or even related to another person who is a Christian. Salvation is not a hereditary matter. On the contrary, you must believe on Jesus and you must be ready. Amen. So when Jesus returns, there's finality. There's division. Destinies are now settled. The time for believing is past and the time for destinies to be settled has arrived, some taken away to judgment, others left to enter the kingdom. The mystery, no one knows the day or the hour. The unbelief, people will be going on just as it has always been, thinking it will never come to an end, scoffing even at those who have told them about the second coming of Jesus. The, the finality of it, there's a great time of division that occurs. Fourth, Finally, notice the readiness for this return that is spoken of, the readiness for Christ's return. Verse 42, therefore, because these things will be, stay awake, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Stay awake. And that is a word for all of God's people for all time. This is why it's preserved for us to read this morning, because this is God's calling upon the 
lives of all of His people. Stay awake. Did you know that looking for the return of Christ is necessary for your holiness? How do you live a holy life in an unholy world? How do you live a holy life, a life that's devoted to the Lord and a life of confessing sin and constant repentance and walking in the way of righteousness? How do you live a holy life? You, you live it with your eyes not fixed on this world, but fixed on the world that is coming, which is to say with your eyes fixed on the one who is coming, your eyes fixed on Jesus himself. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Right? Right now we see from afar. We greet from afar. We have eyes granted to us by salvation. We see by faith but one day, faith will become sight. We will see Him as He is. Next verse. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. I can tell you how to discern whether or not you're living your life, as Peter talked about, with readiness of mind, pre preparation of mind, with your hope set fully on the grace that is coming when Jesus returns. I can tell you how to discern whether or not you're looking forward to the day when you'll see Him as He is. Just ask yourself this, what are you doing with sin? Are you confessing it? Are you repenting of it? Are you turning from it? What are you doing with a sinful world all around you? A world in rebellion against God. Do you embrace that as your home? Or do you say, no, we're strangers and pilgrims in this land. We're looking for a better country, a heavenly one. What are you doing with the sin around you? What are you doing with the sin within you? You see? Because he says, John says, everyone who hopes in him like this, but when he returns, you're going to see him as he is. And everyone, this is a universal truth, everyone who hopes in him like that purifies himself. Why? Because the one who's coming is pure. He himself is pure. In fact, he died not just to forgive you of your sins, but to deliver you from your sins. And if I say that Jesus is my Savior, if I say He's my Redeemer, if I say He died for me, then I'm saying He died to forgive me of my sins, but He also died to set me free from them. Which means I don't want to go on living in them. Oh, I do. I sin because the flesh is still present. But what has fundamentally been transformed in my life is my sins are no longer the things I can go on in forever without grief, without 
godly sorrow. It causes me to turn from those sins and turn afresh and anew to my Redeemer, to ask for His forgiveness in a fatherly sense, and to pursue what is pleasing in His sight. You see, that's our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. What pleases the one who is pure? And so if my heart and mind and life are set on the return of him who is pure, I am purifying myself. What happens when you're not awake? What happens when you've lost sight of your future? What happens when you're not looking for the return of Christ? Is for that season, I know this is not going to be forever if you're truly saved, but for that season, you become comfortable in things that displease God. So let me ask you as I finish, what would Christ's return today mean for you? What would his return, if it were to be on this day, let me just ask for, do you believe he's coming? Do you have his word on it? Well, if it was today, what would that mean for you? Salvation or judgment? If you believe His words, then you also believe in when He tells you to be alert and ready for obedience. So let's be honest with our own hearts. Are we living each day with that alertness? Let's make it really simple. Just think about this past week. And maybe it's been more on your mind lately because we've been in Matthew 24. I hope so. I pray so. But if we look back at this last week, we begin with Monday, we bring ourselves all the way to this Sunday. How often have you thought about the return of your Savior? How often have you thought about the fact He really is coming? So are you living with that kind of alertness? Can you understand and are you mirroring what John talks about when he says everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself for he is pure. Are, are you mindful of the holiness of your Savior? Do you desire to please him so that you're dealing with the sins in your life, knowing you're going to one day see him face to face? Do you know the holiness that's explained by this hope? And we think about sanctification, progressive sanctification, and we, we talk about all these principles involved with it. And, and the principles that are often discussed are right on. I mean, they're spot on. They need to be discussed. Sanctification means understanding justification and the truths of salvation. And sanctification means taking hold of the means that God has ordained, which would be His Word and prayer and fellowship. And sanctification requires faithfulness to the Lord's church and all the things that He's designed for our growth. And, and all those things are true. Do you know, do you know what I think is, is least mentioned though it is so specifically mentioned in 1 John 3, you and I will not be progressively sanctified without looking for the return of Jesus. Because it's everyone who has this hope in Him who purifies Himself, even as He is pure. You won't grow as God means for you to grow if you're not mindful of the return of your Savior. Jesus is coming again. 
So do I need to make that relevant for you? Or is that relevant all by itself? It's relevant, isn't it? It's the most relevant thing you'll hear today. The words of your God that you now hold in your hands. Every word pure. Every word true. Every word trustworthy. And your Savior says to you, I'm coming. Stay awake. Stay alert. Obey me. I'm coming. The church would say, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice in the birth of our Savior. But I especially rejoice that I'm among your people who understand the rest of the story. The Son of God came into the world born of a virgin, but He didn't stay in a manger. He grew up and He lived a sinless life, a righteous life, that He then laid down voluntarily as a sacrifice for our sins. His blood atoned for all my sins. And His righteousness alone answers for my acceptance with You. So that we stand before You this day a justified people if we know Your Son. Declared right with, with justice because the just one died for the unjust ones as our substitute in our stead to answer for everything we needed to be accepted by you. And in this we rejoice and in this we rest. And yet, Lord, you call us to work. Not to be accepted by you, but because we have been accepted, because we're yours. To be messengers of your gospel, to be messengers of the truth in this lost and dying world until the time comes when there is no more opportunity. You call us to serve as missionaries, strangers, sojourners on our way to the better country, to the heavenly one. Strengthen us, Lord, to stay awake. Strengthen us to put away the sin that clings so closely to us. Strengthen us to pursue the purity that belongs to our Redeemer, strengthen us to live lives that please you in our generation. Strengthen us to recognize, to recognize the relevance of everything you've said, the great treasure that we have in the Bible. Thank you that you've left us with your words and that holding on to your words is the way to persevere. Bless this to our hearts for your glory and for our good. Save the lost, Lord. Anyone hearing me this day who doesn't know your son, oh, may they call out to Jesus this very day while they have opportunity. And may you save. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.